From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. We have to ask ourselves, is the value of that creed in that it connects us to the community of the fourth century important enough to ask people to say things that really don't make sense to them today? This week I speak with Val Webb through the magic of the internet via Skype all the way from Mudgee, New South Wales, Australia. She's the author of a new book, Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, Finding Your Own Voice. Before I talk with Professor Webb, I have a big announcement. Welcome to new listeners in Asheville, North Carolina. WPVM 103.7, The Voice, has picked up Religion for Life. Catch it Sunday mornings at 8.30. WPVM joins WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia, in carrying Religion for Life. My media empire is growing. Rupert Murdoch is in a state of panic. WPVM Asheville is carrying religion for life because a listener called the station and asked them to check it out. The program director did and realized it was a good fit. So thank you, whoever you are. And if you are listening via podcast or on one of the other stations as you travel through and would like to hear Religion for Life weekly on your station, contact the program director and ask them to check it out. It's a 29-minute weekly show, free to stations and on podcast. New episodes are uploaded every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Catch Religion for Life on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podomatic, the KBOO podcast page, and wherever else you download podcasts. Find links at religionforlife.com. Dr. Val Webb is an Australian theologian holding a graduate degree in science and a Ph.D. in theology. She's taught religious studies in the United States and in Australia and has written 11 books, including Like Catching Water in a Net, Human Attempts to Describe the Divine, and Stepping Out with the Sacred, Human Attempts to Engage the Divine. Her latest book is perfect for a study group. It's called Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, Finding Your Own Voice. Via Skype from Australia, welcome Dr. Webb to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. Well, this book is somewhat like a textbook to introduce people to theology and the history of theological movements, but it's not a textbook in that your style is so approachable and so readable. Uh, For whom did you write this book? Well, John, I I find that talking with different people just um, socially, but also when I make presentations about just the different topics I talk about, So many people know only one version of Christianity, and they have no idea that theology has changed over the centuries and keeps on changing. Or else they've left the church altogether, because what they heard does not make sense to their reason or experience. And what I was trying to say in the book is that there's never been only one way to think about God, and that many doctrines over the centuries have been held in place simply by fear or power or authority, and more liberating ideas have been silenced. And so I'm encouraging people in this book to take on responsibility to do their own theology, to find something that's transforming for them, rather than simply accepting the often dumbed-down scraps from the tables of others. (laughs) Dumbed-down scraps from the tables of others. I like that. Uh, Lloyd Gearing, uh, across, I guess, the the way from you, theologian from Wellington, New Zealand, uh, wrote in his last book that we are all theological do-it-yourselfers. It, it, the subtitle of your book is Finding Your Own Voice. Is that saying something similar? Well, I think the um, what I'm trying to say is that we need to, laity in particular, need to accept the responsibility 
for choosing their authorities. Um, and there are many authorities out there, and in the 21st century there are the authorities of science, authorities of philosophy, sociology, many other things beyond just religious doctrine. And I think um, the laity need to take this responsibility, not to read it all themselves and, and have to read every theological book and decide what it says and whether you agree or not. We need our theologians for that. But take authority to choose who you will let be authoritative in, in your faith, faith journey and the way you think. And part of that authority is taking your own experience and reason as authority. I want to ask you kind of a, a strange question. It seems so basic, but what is theology? I, I know we think about theos and logos, uh, God talk, <laughs> but, what, what, but what is theology? Is it more than that? Well, it certainly is in its most simplest form. It's thinking about God or talking about God, but I, I think you can have the three Ps. It's a process, it's a, some products, and it's a profession. And uh, the process is how we go about about thinking about and talking about God, however we see God um, in the 21st century. Uh, part of the process is not just telling the Christian story, it's telling the Christian story and also linking it with how that Christian story makes sense in the world today. And so theology will always be changing because the world is changing and our knowledge is changing and um, our different authorities and access to ideas are always changing. And we have to keep that changing going. And so we get all these products of theologies, not just one. And that's the, the, the point of my book, that there is not just one answer, uh, one correct belief. We have many different products. We've had people that have argued that we should all escape from the world while others want us to jump right in um, into the center of, of life and commitment. Um, others want us to go to the monasteries. Others, others want us to do many different things. And so there are many ways many products that have come out of the theological process. And then, of course, it's the profession, the prof those who choose to professionally uh, work at a discipline of theology. But the, the important thing to me, I think, is that theology is always changing with the context and with the knowledge. For example, when, you know, when the uh, Christian, early Christians became more Greek than Jewish, they had to change, theology had to change to be, make sense with Greek thought. In the Enlightenment, where human reason was given a place, a bigger place, theology had to change to incorporate that. And after the Holocaust, who could talk about a God of power and love in the same way after the Holocaust? It seems that uh, the opposite uh, of your approach is certainty. Uh, so often faith is almost a synonym for certainty. Uh, I have faith, I'm certain about my belief. But I hear you saying that certainty is, is the opposite of faith. Well, I've actually said that I think uncertainty is the gift to our age. Hmm. And that might make people rather nervous because we like our certainty. It's a safe place to be. But if we really think about what we know in life to be certain, there are very few things that we can say. This is, I am certain of this. In fact, um, saying I am certain has more to do with our own intuition, um, needs, denial, of knowledge than it has to do with a, cer a certainty that can be spelled out. Um, in my book, In Defense of Doubt, An Invitation to Adventure, I write about the arguments between doubt and faith. People, our hymns pit faith and doubt as opposites. 
And this has been such a problem because it makes then faith something about certainty. Whereas doubt, I think, doubt is the not the opposite of faith and belief, but it's the discrepancy. When the faith, what we intuit, what, um, how we live our lives, does not line up with the belief systems we've been taught. And so doubt becomes that discrepancy, which is a catalyst to say, come on, think about this, um, move ourselves into more richness of life. And I think that's the other thing about certainty. When you say doubt, faith equals certainty, there's no room for doubt, there's no room for any creative movement. Well, it's like science, of course, is about uh, doubting. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, in a sense, it's a principle of doubting, um, challenging everything. Uh, is, is science helping uh, theologians be better theologians? Well, I was a scientist in my early life before I had to go back to theology, went back to the to university to get answers for my own doubts and questions. Mm-hmm. I was a research scientist, and I think that probably shapes a lot of my attitudes to religion as well. I'm old enough to have gone through all the arguments of science and religion, how to hold them together, how they're opposites, whatever we want to say. But I think personally that the current 21st century is the most exciting time to have this discussion between science and religion. Because I think we're all, scientists are are so absorbed with the wonder and the uncertainty and the um, excitement of the universe. We get have new things happening every day, water ma- now on Mars, all these things that are just opening up our minds and making scientists even less able to say, I am certain of this or that, or I think this or that, which is obviously not a scientific principle because you have to always be open to change. And I think religion can learn for this wonderfully that now because what's, what's um, contemporary theology about? To me, it's wonder. It's about wondering both wondering at the wonder and wondering about the mystery. And so I think science and uh, theology have a chance to be on the same playing field today. If we can both stick to the idea of wonder and openness and pushing the uncertainties in every direction, then we've got something to talk about. Yeah, of course, I have people on this program who, who would say that uh, religion is in a war with science. So we, we, we'd be better if we educated people beyond religion. But you do see a positive future for religion, and in particular Christianity, this sense of wonder. Well, well, I think it depends, too, on how we're going to define religion and Christianity. Okay. Certainly, certainly I see no positive, um, positive future for a Christianity that says God is a being sitting up on the, on the cloud and manipulating the world like a giant telephone operator um, <laughs> sending rain <laughs> sending floods you know on the wicked and finding car parks for the faithful um, if that's our idea of God then I think science and religion have a again have a struggle because that's certainly not we know what we know in our understanding of the universe today um, but if we can talk about um, God as something with as the However we describe that word as the energy of the universe, as something within this whole mystery, um, then I think we've got more open, open playing fields than we've had before. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Val Webb. She's the author of a new book called Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, Find Your Own Voice. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the concept of God. Um, Does God have a life after our guy, our telephone operator in the sky, is no longer credible? 
What have you learned? What about what has been some options uh, for uh, thinking about God in the 21st century? Well, I guess I, I wrote a book on this, like catching water in a net: human mm-hmm. attempts to describe the divine, and that that went across religions because I think this is another thing about Christianity today: we can't just stay in our own little box. If we're going to talk about God in any meaningful way that incorporates the universe or um, is part of the of the the, the whole, um, then that means it incorporates the Hindu and the Sikh uh, and the Muslim. And so we have to find language for God um, that, that goes across that, across that whole spectrum. Um, I, I, find, I find we can certainly not have, the, we certainly cannot have the language of the being in the sky anymore because that is so against science. I think we need to look for language that's meaningful, as I've said before, within the scientific world. I struggle a bit with the use of the word atheism Mm -hmm. because, um, and I know that's popular in some areas today, I struggle because for the majority of people hearing that, they are going to think that that is the old-fashioned rejection of absolutely everything that gives meaning, whereas I think many people who use that term are rejecting the supernatural being up in the clouds, the idea of something controlling the universe. Um, So I think we've got a language thing going there and trying to find language that is most helpful for people, particularly people who are in the theological world and and seeing the nuances between what it means to talk about a theism when it comes to God. Um, I must admit I'm old enough to just, and have been... In, in the whole faith situation long enough to feel that the more open we can be, the better. As, as a scientist in the past, I have trouble saying that there is certainly nothing that we might call in any way God. I think that's, um, to me, that's, that has a, a, a le- le- level of closing off the options or even arrogance. Um, because yeah. I think we, we can't, I mean, when we talk about parallel universe, we talk about this, that, um, to, under, to say that we know de- definitively what God is or is not is a problem. For some people, God has been called love, and that's very biblical. Um, so the idea of the energy of love as being something uh, in the past may well have been called God is, is a valid option. Um, ideas of... Um, Many of these ideas, I'm, I guess I'm more interested in deconstructing images that are not helpful than in trying to pin down new metaphors. It's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing journey. That mightn't be, that mightn't be satisfying to some people, but to me it is because I've, in my history, coming from quite conservative theology in the past and struggling with that, um, I just feel that living, living life and being open is much more healthy than trying to redefine um, new territory. Well, you know, I I, I agree with you in, in so many ways because this I, I, I have this conversation a lot with 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 atheists and with folks um, who are uh, want to retain God in some way or another, and it certainly is a powerful symbol. And some people are going to redefine the terms, and some people are going to reject them. But you say uh, you have a chapter called Theological Hospitality, and that's I like that idea, the idea of um, being open and, and a hospitable place to wrestling with this question without quite having to pin it down 
prematurely. Yeah, because I think we're going to, I think, as, you know, when I do a history of theology over 21 centuries in a book, I, I, I mm-hmm. learn again that theology is always changing. And no matter what, what we say now about God um, may well be different in 50, I hope it will be different in 50 or 100 years' time because we, with new knowledge, you, you get new understandings of the particular term. But we can live with the mystery. I think we can live with the, the uncertainty if we don't focus, have to focus on having some definitive statement by which we have to corral people, as it were, into some sort of um, understanding. And that's where the hospitality comes from, because we're in churches now, or out of churches, where there's such a spectrum of understanding about doctrines. And unless we've got a way to be together without demanding even minimum um, definitions of what it is to be a Christian. That's another one that we can talk about. But even demanding those minimum definitions, then we can be together. And I like what Diana Butler Bass has done, saying that for churches to change from the old idea of you had to believe something first and you had to behave in a certain way and then you belonged to a community, turning it around and saying we need to belong in communities first and we need to learn what behavior or what actions are suitable, whether it's ritual, whatever, for that community. And out of that belonging and behaving, then our theology emerges and changes and continues to emerge. Well, you know, um, I, I continue want to push push the church a lot. And I wonder if, if, I, if we can possibly push it too far. Is there... Um how far do you think church bodies can go in regards to theological change? Are there such things as essential beliefs uh, required in order to be a Christian, for example? Well, we've got something like, for those who count, we've got something like 41,000 Christian denominations around mm-hmm. the world today. Um, so obviously there have, been, there have been many, many people who feel you have to have some sort of definitive statement um, underlying a thing that everyone agrees with. Uh, problem with that is I think what happens is you get a few that agree with it and the rest just cross their fingers behind their backs and hope nobody asks them yeah. what they really think so that they can actually stay together as a community. But I think we need to get away from that emphasis. Our Uniting Church in Australia with its basis of union, because it was a new church formed in the 19, 1977 out of Methodist, Presbyterians and Congregationalists, does have a statement that um, allows for fresh words, for new conversations to, to change its thinking, um, which I think is a very healthy statement for a church. Um, it does also have some certain doctrinal beliefs as well. But it, having that little option so people can say, yes, well, things will change. Things are likely to change, and we're okay with that. I, had a, I did a study group just recently in a church on the new book, and I said to them, what would you think are the minimum requirements for being Christian? And I assumed that the people would say things like believing in the Trinity and the atonement and um, some of these sorts of doctrines that we've carried with us for so long. But what interested me was that many of the people heavily engaged in the church said things like following the teachings of Jesus, being part of the presence of Jesus or, or what they understood as Jesus' life and, um, and ideas and goals were. And to me, I found that quite healthy because that's how the church, the, the early church was. 
just people um, following the teachings of Jesus, belonging to the community, um, looking forward to the reign of God before we actually got our creeds, which defined Trinity, defined, um, defined certain things, which at that time were very linked to philosophical understandings, which are now outdated. But they, that was their idea prior to that of the spirit within the church. Theologian Val Webb is my guest on Religion for Life. She's speaking with me via Skype from New South Wales, uh, Mudgee, Australia, and uh, she's the author of Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, a brand new book, Find Your Own Voice. And uh, one of the advantages of, of creeds, I suppose, is that they uh, help us define people as a community. We are the people who believe this. Um, and if we find our own voice, will we sacrifice community? I don't think we, we will sacrifice community if we can decide what it is that holds a community together. Um, are we held together by belief statements or are we held together by a community seeking to live the life of Jesus in the 21st century um, mm. in our communities? And to take notice of the context, the issues, and to let our theology emerge from that rather than have, be in, have our creeds imposed on us um, one size fits all. And so what was said in the fourth century has to fit now. I mean, I take the take some of the fourth century creeds. Yeah. Um, first of all, we take we start with I believe. Now, although many um, people try and interpret that as meaning we believe or we trust or whatever, for the for the 21st century person who stands up in church without theological background, I believe means I believe this to be true. And we're very reluctant these days to make I believe statements. We don't ask people to do that too much. That's the first thing. And even without getting into the theology of the Trinity in the creeds, we have a cosmology in the creeds that is a three-tiered medieval universe. And so we're saying, I believe that Jesus descended from heaven up there, descended into hell down there, came back again and rose to heaven. Now, again, for person, a person who's not theologically educated in how you might interpret that as metaphor or something else, that's what you're saying, I believe. And that basically is flies in the face of science today. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is the value of that creed in that it connects us to the community of the fourth century important enough to ask people to say things that really don't make sense to them today? Yeah, we, um, yeah, we just have to twist the words around, like you say, turn turn them into metaphors or or find ways to say yes to these things that we really that don't make sense. And I I often wonder too when well I know I don't wonder I know when you read the stories of the formation of the fourth century creeds um, under Constantine and how some bishops were locked in without food so that they would agree. I just wonder how much the fourth century creeds were. The, the people making those creeds actually thought this is going to be for all time. This is an eternal statement. Or were they just making a statement in that time and place where they had been, they had been persecuted, when there were many other ideas about Jesus floating around, and when Constantine said, we need a definite orthodox answer. And we know those creeds changed. They didn't, there, was, there was discussion about the creeds for the next few centuries. And so I think it's just asking the value of such a creed uh, in the 21st century, I guess that's, that's 
where I am with it and, and whether we are putting too much emphasis on that rather than helping people to see who they are and how we can talk about the Christian story in a scientific age. Yeah, you write about uh, your denomination, the Uniting Church in Australia, and I think of my own, the Presbyterian Church in the United States. Both uh, have long histories of social justice commitments, and uh, it seems to me that that's the stuff we really want to do. But this this uh, anchor that we're kind of pulling along the ground are these fourth century creeds. Um, but are ethics becoming more central? Do you think than beliefs? I think ethics um, are, are becoming very central because people are, have, are struggling with some of the doctrinal things, and so the way we go with that is to say, well doesn't really matter what I, what I believe, it's what I do and how I live in this world. And yes, to a certain extent, I think that's true, but the theologian in me has a problem, a little problem with that, because what I find is that unless people have a theology that really fits and makes sense to them, that's not like some, as Schopenhauer said, some attached limb or wax nose that is added onto them and does not really is not really part of them. Unless we have a theology that fits who we are and inspires us to do what we do, we've still got that dissonance and that, that, that problem. Our images of God matter because our images of God, whatever metaphors we might use, dictate how we relate to that God and whether we can believe in a God at all. We might think that theology is kind of esoteric or academic, but we really have some serious issues uh, on planet Earth. So how does theology relate to ecology? Well, I think we've got to think about now a liberation theology, uh, a contextual theology for the planet. We have an amazing planet, but our grandchildren may tell their children that we had an amazing planet because of what we have done. In the past, theology has never really talked much about the planet. The only time it has talked about it is how the planet is being used or is available for the use of human beings. Even the traditional creation, fall, redemption motif was about humans, not about the creation itself. And in our Victorian era, the understanding for a religion was the need for a high God. And so anyone who worshipped Mother Earth was called not a religion, and pagan. We have a whole history of centuries of negativity towards natural theology or the idea of divine revelation or seeing the divine within, within nature. Um, that, was, that has demoted nature even further. And it's only now where we have people like Teilhard de Chardin, Thomas Berry, um, Sally McFaig, uh, Norm Harbour from Australia, has creation actually been seen as a subject for liberation in its own right? And this need did not arise out of academic theological discussions. It came out of the groaning of the earth itself, the disappearing of animals, and the cracking of mud flats as the water receded. And so it's very distressing when we hear climate change being ignored by Christians on the understanding that God wouldn't let this happen if it was God's will. We have to do so much better than that. And so I think an ecology of the planet and of nature, where we are part of nature, not something standing on a hill looking at nature, that whole ecology of the planet as the divine, of the place of the, the spirit, the sacred, has to be part of our theological thinking today. 
Val Webb on Religion for Life, author of Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, Finding Your Own Voice. One final question. What do you hope people will take away from your book? Well, I hope they take a lot of things. Most importantly, to become theologically literate, because if we don't have um, theological literacy, what use are we in the world? Because otherwise, we'll just be short sound bites from others' voices. I think it's spring cleaning our minds from past their use-by-date theology. We have a 2,000-year-old history, but our thinking does not have to be 2,000 years old. Val Webb has been my guest today on Religion for Life, all the way from Australia via Skype, author of Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, Finding Your Own Voice. Thank you for the book, and thank you for being with me today. Thank you, John. It's been wonderful to talk to you. You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. Follow Religion for Life on Twitter, like Religion for Life on Facebook, and subscribe to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is produced at KBOO Portland. Be well.